welcome to another edition of the Bible in the News. All the holy prophets since the world began have spoken about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But we ask, what would that kingdom be like without its capital city? Of course, nothing. It would be like restoring a beautiful classic car, but missing the engine. Wholly incomplete. The prophets are clear, though. As Isaiah writes, the time will come when out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But actually, surprisingly maybe for some, in the New Testament, Luke is maybe even more direct with his timing when he writes that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. There will be a time when Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles. But that time will come to an end. Until, says the verse, until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. And that's Luke 21 and verse 24. Those Gentile times are exactly what the prophet Daniel, under inspiration, wrote of in chapter 8 when he writes of the 2300 days that the sanctuary would be cleansed. Or, as the RV margin translates it, justified. Or again, as the writer John Thomas translated it, the time when the holy, the quote, holy would be avenged. Now, the 2300 days, when using the classic prophetic day for a year principle, it would be 2300 years. With dates, of course, the difficult part is, is not so much when it's going to end, per se, as when are you going to take it from? When does the time period begin? Well, it was Samuel Bagster in his comprehensive Bible that was printed in 1827, or at least I'm sure it was in more, but the copy that I've seen is uh, from 1827. There's a marginal note on the verse uh, in Daniel chapter uh, 8 that points to the year, it just says in the margin, so for when the sanctuary would be cleansed, 2300 days it just puts in the in the margin puts a verse or puts a, a year 1968 well jerusalem fell into jewish hands at the time of the six day war in june of 1967 you say wow he's a year off what good is a year off you either get it or you don't get it well when you're starting a when you're starting a time period and you are looking at history and saying exactly what year do we start it, it's certainly not that easy. However, if you would like it a little closer, the writer R. Milligan wrote in 1868, so 100 years before the Six-Day War, before the Jews have barely barely starting to go back, this is before the First Zionist Congress, this is before uh, the Balfour Declaration, This is before the first Aliyah, second Aliyah, and so on. He writes in his book, Reason and Revelation, that the time would be, quote, he says, the late spring or the early summer of 1967. He has it down to literally the season, almost the month. I think it's truly amazing. And that quote from R. Milligan, to me, leaves us no doubt that the Word of God and the prophecies are sure and completely reliable. They are just, it is truly a proof of our faith. 
This is all so beautiful because God told us in Psalm 102 that there was, quote, a time, a set time, sorry, to favor Zion. We are now witnessing that time. But we have to admit, it is a slow process. It's been going on for almost 150 years. And really, it was extremely slow at the beginning. But things are speeding up at an incredible pace. And really speeding up in a big way since 1967. But of course, this slow process, it was the same when God brought the Israelites into the land the first time under Joshua. In Exodus 23 and verse 30, uh, it, it reads, and God, it's God saying, By little and little I will drive them out before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. It is proving exactly the same today. A, uh, an incredible struggle and little by little. But out of this process, God is shaping a nation for great things. Now, when we look at Jerusalem and we can see that Trump has declared Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and it is truly incredible that we've witnessed that, and the response actually from the nations has been almost just as incredible the other way, the response against it. But on the front lines of actually ensuring that Jerusalem is Israel's capital is an organization called Ateret Kohanim. And this organization ensures that there will be Jews living in and around the areas of East Jerusalem. The And we'll, we'll talk about it again. I'll mention it again, but to ensure that we get it. These are old Jewish neighborhoods that they're trying to um, repopulate with Jews once again. And on their own website, it's, it reads, quote, The aim of Ateret Kohanim is to fulfill a generations-old dream of rebuilding and securing a united Jerusalem, strengthening our Jewish roots and reestablishing the once-thriving Jewish communities that were destroyed by Arab pogroms and the coordinated efforts of the Arab countries before 1967. And the director of Ateret Kohanim is a gentleman by the name of Daniel Luria. And the following is an excerpt that, uh, from an interview he gave with the Heovel um, organization. And he speaks about the need for the work of the organ, the need uh, for the work of the organization. Here he is. Well, you know, we look at, uh, at things very differently in Jerusalem. For a start, uh, there is no such thing as occupied Jerusalem. There's no such thing as East Jerusalem. Um, uh, maybe it's occupied by the Jewish people. That's okay. Uh, but illegal occupiers is really an oxymoron. Um, you know, you can't be an illegal occupier of your own land. Uh, but we are looking um, right behind me at the what I call the pumping station of the Jewish world. You know, if there is the land of Israel... If there's Jerusalem, within Jerusalem there's the Holy Basin. I'm not a big fan of the word, but nevertheless it's the old city and the area around there. The centre of the Jewish world is clearly the Temple Mount. You know, if there's a direct avenue to God, and that may be the whole land of Israel, but if there is a, a more direct system to get through to the, to, the, uh, to the presence, that's it over there. And therefore everything around there, the old city and the area, the city of David, the Mount of Olives, this becomes central to who we are as a people. So it really irks me to a certain extent, and I could probably use harsher words, when the world doesn't comprehend this connection. We have to understand that we are part of this phenomenal unfolding redemption process. And part of it is a physical redemption, part of it is a spiritual redemption. 
Atzeret Konim, I would say, is part of the physical redemption process to make sure that there's going to be greater Jewish life here because there's not going to be any temple when there's all these mosques and hatred and Arabs and Muslims being around here and hardly any Jewish life. And when we came back in 67, when the floodgates to redemption were opened up, there were zero Jews here. So now we've gone back and we've got now Jews, a thousand Jews live in the old Jewish quarter that some people call the Muslim quarter. We're looking down here at the city of David, half Jewish, half Arab today. They call this whole area Silwan, but what can you do? Silwan hasn't been here for donkey's years. It's, uh, it's been here, I mean, until 1860, there was nothing outside the old city walls. I'm telling you, when the world hears this propaganda as though that the Arabs have been here for generations all they have to do is look what Mark Twain said what was here there was nothing outside the city walls in 1860 yet they claimed they've been here for generations nothing but absurdity and lies the first people that actually live in that area there right across the valley were Yemenite Jews but like the story of the old Jewish quarter the Muslim quarter of today and like the story of the city of David that we've gone back to and like the fact that we've got a Jewish neighborhood on the Mount of Olives we've come back to the Yemenite village today there are 17 Jewish families living in the old Yemenite village. Wow. We've doubled our presence in the last year. Now, it's not straightforward living. On a daily basis, there can be Molotov rock cocktails thrown at our families. One family was attacked 126 times in a four-month period. Not normal. I think when we hear those words, it's, it is actually incredible to think of a family living, as he mentions at the very end, he mentions a family that would live through being attacked 126 times in a four-month period, and that was last year. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable to think what some of these families will put up with, and these are families with young children that are living in these areas. And at the same time, the great excitement of the Jewish life coming back to these areas that were for years without, without Jews... Uh, in some of these areas, it's actually only been since uh, 1948 when they lost Jerusalem. But the life is coming back. And the following is actually, and you'll hear the excitement, as Daniel takes us now down into uh, the area of, as he called it, it used to be called, uh, well, it still is called by the world, Silwan, uh, and as they call it, uh, Shiloach. And um, it's it's as he takes us down, he he goes through, um, into the old Yemenite uh, synagogue as they've now uh, reacquired this. So um, we'll listen to uh, Daniel again as he takes us down into that area. Right, we're, we're approaching here to uh, the most attacked family or building in the country. It's called the Honey House. Um, the only thing sweet about it is the family and the name. But this building, as you can see, has been literally attacked and attacked. It was a single family living here. Um, you know, uh, for the last 10 years until we managed to get hold of or acquire or return to the Jewish people the, uh, the synagogue complex. The synagogue complex starts from here, basically, and goes all the way to the end. Can I cut Shasha? No, while well, it's open, it's all. This is really the, uh, a little bit of an understanding room about the history. Here we have the Yemenite village at its peak. Um, the first buildings in this area were the public homes for the poor. This was the synagogue. We knew that there were three domes. We didn't know what it looked like inside. Unfortunately, because of pogroms and riots, the Jews were basically driven out. We even had a picture of the Rebbe teaching Yemenite children in the synagogue. 
we had this, we knew what it looked like inside, outside. And if you look at an aerial view of part of the, this was the communal area, everything was destroyed except, it's hard to see, the three domes. So we know the synagogue existed, the title still existed with all the other places, but the Arabs were living there in new buildings. But the synagogue existed. So we eventually managed to, uh, we're now standing, this, at the moment, we're standing in this particular building here, at this level. So we managed to make contact with the Arabs who were living here. This is the sanctified trust that looks after the synagogue. Um, all I can say on film is that we contacted the family and arrangements were made. We then ended up coming, follow me. We then ended up breaking through here. We come to another room where there was a wall here, stairs going down, flat roof, and we found the original arches. Remember the picture where the, uh, the rabbi was standing? He was standing in front of an arch. There was one arch here, one arch there, and a window to his right. So we came into that original room. That's not a massive synagogue in our terms today. But in the 1880s, where there was obviously three small synagogue rooms, it wasn't one large chamber, this was it. So it is exciting that the Jews have now gone back to some of these parts of East Jerusalem that were left um, without any Jews for, as we say, since about 1948. But it is certainly no easy task, as we mentioned already, and Daniel mentioned himself um, about the family being attacked 126 times in the four-month period. But the following is from um, Nero Rabinovich, and she is one of the mothers that lives in uh, one of the residences in that area that is, uh, the world, as the world calls it, Silwan. But it really is a, a, uh, a densely populated Arab village, and it's on the, as, um, as was said, on the, on the foot of the Mount of Olives. But you can hear from her what it's like to actually live in that area. Here she is. Fourteen years ago, after great researches and efforts of Ateret Kwanim and great courage and lots of faith and vision, we came back to the Yemenites' village. Along the years, we were facing many, many difficulties, security difficulties. The Arabs there were very hostile, and we feel like we are fighting every day for Jerusalem. Our aim and our goal is to regain full sovereignty of the state of Israel in Jerusalem. Silwan looks now like a backyard of our capital city, but we're going in the right direction. We need to face on a daily basis, since the embassy has moved, and we're glad that it has moved to Jerusalem. Our homes and cars are being attacked all day long, all night long, by Molotov cocktails, rocks, stones, washing machines, refrigerators, pipes and bins, and whatever they can find, diapers and eggs, thrown, trying to get us afraid, desperate, and leave. The meaning of it is that in every building we have two guards watching over us. We go in and out with a bulletproof car, and when we walk, we walk with a guard ahead of us, a guard behind us, three soldiers, and a police car. It's complicated, but we prefer carry the complications and take zero risks, because Jerusalem will be built in our generation with life. So it truly is incredible what these 
families are doing by living in these, um, especially these East Jerusalem neighborhoods. And what is most incredible is the reasons they do it. And yes, it is for faith and for uh, the country and for Jerusalem itself. But if you take a map and look where all these families live and where these different neighborhoods are, it is considered the shield of Jerusalem, or at least that's what they call it, the shield of Jerusalem. And they uh, believe that by putting Jews in all these areas in East Jerusalem, they will be able to hold on to it. As we say, Trump is recognized that Jerusalem is the capital, but this ensures that Jews are in the capital themselves. And the most, to me, one of the most incredible things is that this whole area was offered to Yasser Arafat in 1993 in the Oslo Accords. He was offered approximately 98% of the West Bank, and that included much of uh, East Jerusalem. And in fact, B, uh, Bill Clinton said uh, fairly recently, I believe, um, that the Temple Mount itself was, uh, was even offered to Arafat. And in fact, so sure was Arafat that he would uh, have East Jerusalem for, him, for his own, uh, he commissioned a Palestinian parliament building to be built in Abu Dis, which is uh, really a suburb of East Jerusalem. And what is so incredible is that he actually turned down the offer from the Israelis. It was such, such a shocking moment for anyone watching the so-called peace talks. Uh, the Israelis themselves were shocked. And they were also, of course, uh, frustrated. Um, they had offered 98% uh, of the West Bank, and still uh, he would say no. Well, of course, what he didn't want was just a, a land for his people. What he wanted was to destroy the Jewish people. But what we must see is that God is in control. And that parliament building still stands only half completed as a sign that events can only go so far as God allows them. It's his land, and now, adjacent to where that empty shell of an abandoned Palestinian parliament stands, a new Jewish community called Kidmat Zion is beginning. Another project of Ateret Kohanim. I think it's absolutely incredible. The, all the plans of man... And the Jews that he wanted to destroy are now flourishing in the mountains surrounding Jerusalem and in Jerusalem itself. Absolutely beautiful. And there has been, you know, a number of years ago, uh, Teret Kohanim actually um, acquired, uh, that's what they like to say, they acquired, they don't uh, get into the details ever, but they acquired two hotels as you came in, as you come into the uh, Jaffa Gate which is one of the main entrances, maybe even the main entrance, uh, into the old city of Jerusalem. Of course, it's uh, maybe most famous for the entrance of General Allenby, who would not uh, ride his horse in, but would walk in in respect to the city. Uh, he did not want to come in as a conqueror. And he came in through the Jaffa Gate. And when you come in, in through the Jaffa Gate, uh, and it has historically been where you would find most of the Christian building and, uh, and, and churches, um, but uh, Ateret Kohanim has um, now acquired two of the most prominent hotels, the, uh, the Petra and the New Imperial, from the Greek Orthodox. And uh, I guess the patriarch or the, who, whatever his, uh, his title is, whoever it was that made the deal with uh, the Jews, has been uh, released from his duties 
and uh, they're trying everything they can to get it back. But um, the last, I think it was last year, or earlier this year, the Israeli courts sided um, on with Ateret Kohanim and said no, they uh, they can they they are the buildings are theirs. I think they have a 99-year lease with another 99 years after it. But now, you know, you look at all these, you know, and they've got little Jewish communities and buildings throughout East Jerusalem, now throughout the old city, and some of these uh, and some of these neighborhoods in the most prominent areas and positions. It is an all to hold on to Jerusalem. And as Daniel Luria said it, which is so so beautiful, there, there's not going to be a temple here without Jewish life. And that's about the bottom line. If we're going to restore the kingdom of Israel, then there best be Jews in the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And so, if we wanted to look any further, if you go back to, uh, for God's hand, if we want to look any further for God's hand, if you go back to what it was like under Obama, I mean, settlements were the greatest stumbling block to peace, he said. They, and, and John Kerry was running around whipping up uh, you know, sentiment against settlements and Jewish building as if somehow a new, Jewish, uh, a new Jewish home would somehow equate to terrorism. The two were somehow uh, you know, looked on as, as the two great evils. You can't, uh, it's, it was absolutely ridiculous. And now you put in, God has put in, you know, God has put in Trump into power. You know, we're told in Daniel, the, the Lord, um, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And Trump is in power. And now, was it just earlier this year, his new uh, right-hand man, as far as um, an advisor goes, is a gentleman by the name of John Bolton. And we may have mentioned him on here before. But, you know, he is good friends with and close to uh, Daniel Luria and those of Ateret Kohanim. And you, you almost couldn't imagine, after the Obama years, that somebody with, the, with a prominent position, such as John Bolton, or would somebody like John Bolton that was, you know, such good friends with Ateret Kohanim, would get such a prominent position in uh, in the uh, Trump administration, it's actually insane, and I'm at, I've just got a, a very small clip of John Bolton speaking about Ateret Kohanim and what they are doing as far as uh, acquiring properties for the Jews. Here he is. Well, I think it's a basic human right, really. As, you, as long as you have a willing seller and a willing buyer, the notion that Jews can't buy property in the old city, in Jerusalem, in any of the former British mandate, frankly, is unacceptable. Um, there's no issue here of pushing anybody out. Uh, it's a question of what willing uh, participants in the market want to do. And Israel has established one of the most vibrant market economies in the world, Palestinians benefit just as much as Jews do. Uh, and I think this is something when you consider that uh, Jerusalem has been reunited, is never going to be divided again. How is it possible uh, that Jewish citizens of Israel can't buy property in the old city? Right. Well, it's extremely difficult. Uh, you've been a supporter of ours for so many years now, and it's it's to your credit, and uh, you're one of our heroes as a result. I mean, well, there's no well, question. Thank you. you know, when, uh, when I first heard before even 
speaking here at the dinner about this project, people said, well, you know, it's very controversial. And uh, I never quite grasped why it should be controversial. And, and the more I've looked at it over as the years have passed, the more I've decided that if you think it's controversial, you really, you need some explaining done to you. So I'm, I'm happy to participate in a small way and try and do that. And as if John Bolton's not enough, as if, as if one friend wasn't enough, uh, we could add to it Mike Pence, uh, the, the vice president. We could add to it uh, David Friedman, now the ambassador to, uh, to Israel. And, you know, somebody else that you might not have realized is uh, such a friend of Israel. Uh, you may have heard of Mike Huckabee, who was the governor, I believe, of Arkansas. And he is a diehard supporter of the settlements. Um, he's been into the settlements um, with groups like Ateret Kohenim and others. He's been down to some of the most um, contested areas. Uh, he's been down to pray even at uh, Joseph's tomb in, in, in uh, the middle of Nablus. Uh, he went down on a bus at night with uh, many of the, uh, the right-wing um, folks there that would be considered by the rest of the world as, as extremists. Uh, and, you know, he's been into settlements. He's laid foundation stones in settlements. Uh, he's, 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 quite a, he's quite a gentleman. But his daughter is none other than Sarah Sanders, which is the spokesperson for the White House. She's the one that interacts with all the press uh, each and every day. And this is Mike Huckabee's daughter. It's, and, and as I say, spokesperson for the White House. And her, and her father is one of the greatest friends uh, non-Jewish friends, maybe we t- could say, of the settlements. It's just if there's if there's if there is a God in heaven, this is where if you want to see His hand, it is so clear. And now we've got a, with all these in the White House, um, the the Palestinians are are finally the game seems to be in a way it may be up. Uh, Caroline Glick wrote an article entitled uh, just last week, I think it was. Uh, she the title was Trump's peace plan starts with ending the fake one, and that's just it. For all these years, you've had the PA, which wasn't any to talk about it as a partner for peace was was ridiculous. But now the White House has pulled uh, pulled uh, funding for the Palestinian Authority. They've pulled funding for UNRWA which is the UN organization uh, dedicated to the Palestinian refugees. But actually, when you look at what they do, it just ensures that the Palestinian refugees will continue from generation to generation as a growing group. And Trump has pulled the plug on on funding for them. They will try and get it from elsewhere, but it's just, it's quite amazing. And now, last week, he pulled the funding for the East Jerusalem uh, Palestinian hospitals. Because, of course, any money going to them, you know where it ultimately goes. And this week, he's now frozen uh, any bank accounts in the U.S. that are connected to the PA, to the Palestinian Authority. You know, for the first time now, maybe ever, the, you know, the, the U.S. has an administration that sees the Palestinian Authority for what it is. Certainly not a partner for peace. Uh, and it's just... I, I, whether he's steamrolling them, working around them, regardless, all these institutions were directly or indirectly sworn to Israel's destruction. And here they are, being the rug being pulled out on many of them. 
Now, whether we, we as, you know, we the believers will actually see it before we're taken away or not is beside the point. But there will be a time of peace and safety before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, note, not God the Son, uh, comes to save the nation as we see it in Ezekiel 38. And this is something that we discuss often on the program. But from the time that Israel took control of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, any peace process advanced by the nations of the world has always included Israel giving up the heartland of its country. And here it seems we're in the last days, maybe of the last days, and we, we certainly hope that's the case. And we find that all these families are slowly, house by house, brick by brick, taking back the old Jewish neighborhoods and re-bringing Jewish life back to these to Jerusalem. But we're certainly not in a time of peace now. It was just yesterday, a gentleman by the name of Ari Fuld, a Jewish activist and a husband and a father of four, was stabbed in the back of Gush Etzion. And at his funeral, his 22-year-old daughter said, One sentence my father always told me that has stuck with me forever is, If life is easy, you are living it wrong. Life is meant to be hard. That is what I'm doing now. It will be hard, I'm sure, but at least I know I'm doing something right. Well, life in Israel is often hard and sometimes incredibly hard, especially for those that are on the front lines of restoring the Jewish life to the old Jewish neighborhoods. And so we see God's hand working with his nation, bringing them back to him. It's never an easy road, and even in our lives, character is never shaped with an easy road. And so we will close by a song with a song by uh, the musician, the Israeli musician, uh, Yonatan uh, Razel, and it's the song is called Home of Hardships. This has been John Billington with you for another edition of the Bible in the News. Take care. <laughs> Mirjolim nefilot Oh, 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 oh Nevet laot Mitchabet b'shelot Echan atof Hatchushot nevalbelot Aval achshav ani Israel